Beloved of God, may I speak to you in the name of that same God who is grace and love and communion. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it is so good to be back with you here in Portland. I'm a native of Portland, and I've been here for the last three weeks singing with the William Byrd Festival and connecting with family and friends here in my beautiful hometown. I live in Northwest Connecticut now, and I'm the rector of a lovely, historic St. Paul's Parish in the town of Connecticut. It's a beautiful place. It's one of those like leafy little Connecticut towns, one of those you can't get there from here kind of towns. It's a really good life there. And I say connecting with friends and family, and happily, a lot of connecting is happening over food. Oh, thank God, Portland, your love for eating and drinking is everything. I remembered it to being. I've eaten pizzas in both species, both Detroit and New York. I've had gorgeous, wide Chinese noodles sauteed with beef and kimchi. I've ruined a manicure by reaching into the Ethiopian food to make bread my utensil. I am not sorry. I've eaten cheeses that are a foretaste of the life everlasting. <laughs> it's not that there isn't good stuff to be found in Connecticut. I would never even think of eating a lobster roll west of Hartford, say, but wow. <laughs> I got back home. When I go home on Tuesday, I will resort to a less festal season of eating and a more ferial season of meals, even though I will likely carry these memories home with me for a while to come. I have to say, though, for years, the thought of putting on some weight at a, on a vacation would really freak me out. I spent most of the five decades of my life feeling like my body was some kind of mistake. I was always kind of round as a little kid, and I bought my first diet book when I was about nine. Someone left me alone with a $5 bill in the mom's section of the Scholastic Book Fair, and I thought the book with a picture of a pretty lady and pastel leotard with the matching, you know, the headband, the legging, you know, the whole deal. I thought she could solve this problem that it was my body. I knew what a perfect body looked like, the way that any nine-year-old French child would be a perfect francophone. It was the language of my people. And I knew what a good body was. And I knew that I didn't have one. And in case I ever forgot that I didn't have one, don't worry, there was always a concerned citizen handy to remind me. But maybe doing some jazzercise early in the morning before, you know, fourth grade would fix me. Nine years old. My body was not a gift, not a piece of the holy incarnation of the living Christ, not a living member of the body of Christ, but something that was too big, too loud, too stinky, too unlovely to be worthy of love and kindness. There was a pardon, there is a hierarchy of bodies, yes? And mine was not at all near the top. Now, it was not so far down as a body with an obvious disability or a body of color or an older body or a body with addiction or a body that does not have access to the English language, but still, having a fat body has always been a problem to be solved and an apology to be made. 
The common wisdom around fatness is that it is 100% a me problem, and that I alone have the power to fix it if I was only get off my lazy duff and choose to do so. And what could be simpler? The second law of thermodynamics, calories in, calories out, am I right? And thus at nine years old, I began a decades-long odyssey of variations on that theme, the theme of trying the newest proven method of making my body meet and right as is my bounden duty. As an American in this late-stage capitalism and a woman to boot. The growing realities of global climate change, the erosion of the value of labor, the rise and open celebration of white supremacy culture and their devastating effects on millions of other bodies around the world were nothing compared to my own failure. After all, a single fat body is a tragedy, but millions of broken bodies are a statistic to crib that old, that old rascal, Joe Stalin. I have spent nearly 40 years searching for the magical solution, perhaps even the final solution, to being thin, or at least thinner. Name a fad diet, and I've been on it. I became obsessed with counting calories and exercising, with eating foods deemed clean and good, and discovered that indeed I could lose weight, could lose a lot of it, and all I had to do was one simple trick, was to think about food and exercise every waking minute of every day for the rest of my life. To quote a friend of mine who has a PhD in nutrition, all I had to do was have an eating disorder forever. And this knowledge and my own ability to grab this brass ring of being less fat gave me a secret cudgel, yes, to mentally use on anyone who seemed less morally good, I mean, I'm sorry, fatter than myself. And this worked for a while until literally anything else happened, right? Marriage, job stress, financial stress, Thanksgiving and its little buddy Christmas, grief, injury, being stuck at home during a pandemic with a sourdough starter, 20 pounds of flour, and nothing but time. <laughs> there would be a period of self-recrimination and then the commitment to keeping pushing that rock of body shame up the hill every day forever would begin again. If you have ever been fat, then I would bet my pension that you've had a similar experience. And if you've never been fat or have had a physical disability or a body with mobility challenges or had a body of color or a trans body or a queer body or an indigenous body or any combination of these, you have likely still engaged in what author and activist Sonia Rees-Taylor calls body terrorism, body terrorism. We believe consciously or unconsciously that the default body is, you can almost say it with me, right? Thin, white, affluent, able, cisgendered, heterosexual, and male. <laughs> Let me be clear, there's nothing wrong with being those things. It's just, lest you think I'm going around being a hater, I'm not. But the farther away a body gets from these base, the base factory model, right? The farther away a body gets from access to healthcare, for example, or better paying jobs, 
and representation in our government. You don't need to believe me. In fact, you really shouldn't. I love this church. I love the Episcopal Church. You should test out everything I say and push back on what you hear always from this pulpit or any other. But I would invite you to check out some work of people who are smarter than I am. I'd recommend starting with Taylor's masterful book, The Body is Not an Apology, or Aubrey Gordon's fantastic most recent publication, You Just Need to Lose Weight, and 19 Other Myths About Fat People. Both are painstakingly researched masterpieces of quantitative, academic research and qualitative personal and cultural sources. I'll be at coffee hour if you want to talk about it. Now, I should say at this point, you should rightly be asking, uh, preachers, this is church, so why are you talking about this and not, for example, this morning's lectionary passages, which I say, good point, and I am convinced, I am convicted that the persistent belief in good and bad food and good and bad bodies hurts everyone deeply, some of us more than others, and for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, we should really take note. Today's gospel, I believe, illustrates the why of this really well. And I am equally convicted that issues of body shame and radical self-love are the key to this morning's gospel from the 15th chapter of Matthew's account of Jesus' life and work. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth says Jesus. And I should add right here that defilement, according to, this is a good definition, the dean of my seminary, Berkeley Divinity School, Andrew McGowan, says that defilement or ritual impurity is not some miasma of exclusion and marginalization, but simply means that one was not in the required state of purity to attend temple worship before bathing. Defilement, he goes on to say, was a regular and necessary occurrence contracted by inevitable bodily functions and required social duties. But as we see, it could also be contracted by moral failure. Let's note the distinction here. Defilement is not moral failure, but moral failure can cause defilement. In other words, eating without washing your hands first may not be especially hygienic. Please wash your hands for the love of God. And you'll need to ritually bathe before you can go up to the temple. But it is not a moral failing. It doesn't make you a bad person. And I love this for a lot of reasons, especially right now, even as a devotee of good hand-washing technique. This is why food, for one, is many things. It's necessary for life. It's also a source of joy, of pleasure, of connection. Sometimes when I say that things are for pleasure in the Episcopal Church, I just watch people like look at their hands a little bit. <laughs> pleasure is a good thing. For members of the body of Christ, food is at the very center of our faith. Yes, in the form of our sacrament. What does it mean then when we label some foods bad and unclean and some that are good or clean? What does it mean when only wealthy people have access to, quote, good or clean foods? What about our cultural foods? 
In 2015, a couple of restaurateurs who happened to be white opened a restaurant in Manhattan uh, that was billed as being clean Chinese food. Yeah, right, that should, that should make you sit up and take note. <laughs> what does that mean? Twitter had a couple of things to say about it. <laughs> they are no longer in operation. The moral language around food has really big ramifications, is the point. What are we conveying to ourselves and others when we say, ooh, I'm eating cake, I'm being bad. Or, ugh, I'm eating this dry, lifeless salad, I'm being so good. What does that say? That same language around moral coding makes us believe that we have more control over our own bodies than we actually do. We all know that stuff happens. And when we try to eat better or eat healthier, whatever that may mean, I think sometimes we're trying to just, you know, prevent what sometimes can't be prevented. Bodies are both wonderfully strong and amazingly fragile, yeah? So what happens when things shift or change, or I should say here in the uh, early stages of perimenopause shift and change, does that mean that our worth decreases? Am I less valuable than I was 10 years ago? Will I be less valuable 10 years from now? But even more than that, our cultural obsession with right eating keeps us focused on ourselves and in constant judgment, not only of our own, but other bodies. I believe that this judgment robs us of our ability to see God incarnate in our own bodies and therefore in the bodies of others. It reduces us to good and bad shapes, good and bad ways of moving, good and bad abilities, and on and on. Well, Jesus, so far, so good. I'm right with you. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles, but what comes out of the mouth. But then the text is going to go on to illustrate that concept in a really uncomfortable way in verses 21 through 28. Jesus has been moving northeastward on this teaching and preaching tour, and as Matthew's gospel depicts it, he can't seem to keep his identity under wraps despite his best efforts, the so-called messianic secret for all of you nerds out there. Words of his deeds of power travel with him all the way up to the cities of Tyre and Sidon along the northern coastline. And here we encounter an indigenous woman to this region. Mark describes her as Syrophoenician. Here she is labeled with the more pronounceable Canaanite. Either way, her ancestors were on the losing side of Israel's conquest of the land of Canaan. You probably have had to skim at some point the Old Testament stories about the bitter and bloody battles between the Israelites and the Canaanites, but I assure you that everyone in this crowd is well-versed in the ancient enmity, a classic they don't like us and we don't like them kind of scenario. This woman is the very embodiment of the word other. She's Gentile and female. She worships gods who are not Yahweh. She's complete even. This Canaanite woman has 
a bad body. So what happens next makes me uncomfortable to my core. She's pushing through the crowd. She's crying out for mercy from the man she calls Lord and son of David. What a big religious leap here. What on earth could make her do this incredibly transgressive and dangerous thing? My friends, I'm sure it's the same thing that motivates desperate people around the world. The ones who get onto overcrowded bus, uh, boats in that very same Mediterranean Ocean or walk across the deserts of Mesoamerica, the same thing that sees families navigating the maze of American healthcare systems, so-called, or the darker maze of the American mental health care not very system. Love, right? The love of a parent for a child love of a mother or a daughter. So what could be less socially important to an upright citizen than a Canaanite girl child plagued by demons? I mean, that's at least three deviations from the norm of good body that I count. We don't really have to guess what Jesus thought about that because he tells us himself, this woman cries out, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, my daughter is tormented by a demon. I hear that and my heart breaks until I spend some time walking around the streets of Portland with a close-up view of the many, many people who are tormented by demons of every kind. It's pretty easy to get used to seeing so many folks with their hands out and you can't help everybody and you should probably give not give money to people because you don't know what they're going to spend it on. And I don't really live here anyway. Personally, I've got my own problems. So I'm just going to do this thing which Jesus does in this gospel, and I'm just going to ignore them like he ignores her. It's a good strategy. And honestly, you got to get through the day. Because we're all trying to prioritize, right? It's not a crime. It's not a sin. We're just trying to prioritize how we use the resources that we have. It's hard. I know, it's hard. I'm a rector of a small parish. I've got a modest discretionary fund. And as inflation has risen, or food costs have risen, I get, I don't know, 15, 20 calls a month, people asking for assistance. I can't help everybody. So how do you deal with that, that constant no? You gotta make priorities. There's just so much we can do, right? But our woman, our Canaanite woman, she's not gonna go away, and despite the best efforts of the disciples doing their utmost for crowd control, which can I say, hats off to the disciples, but also to the vergers, who I think are their, aunt, their uh, descendants. <laughs> and again, they're acting normally, right? They should protect Jesus. He's a vulnerable person. He's got a full schedule here in Syrophoenicia, and keeping him safe in a crowd has got to be an exhausting and demanding job. Please, Jesus, just send her away. It's a reasonable response. Everyone is acting so reasonably here, but she still won't go away. She is so unreasonable. So Jesus tries to soft pedal, hey, lady, I'm just here for my own people today. If you want to make an appointment, go ahead and call my assistant, and she'll probably find that my calendar is full until at least after Easter. But still, she will not go away. 
And because love is strong, determined stuff, she actually kneels before him, preventing him from moving unless he steps over her body, forcing a conversation, Lord, help me. And this is where the cringe happens. Major, major cringe, because he responds with a racial slur, like a it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles kind of slur. It's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs, says Jesus. He has just called this woman a dog and her daughter dogs. He's called them female dogs. This moment in the Gospels makes me so uncomfortable in my guts. And I just want to pause and acknowledge it. Normally, I would immediately try and do what I usually do when I'm really physically uncomfortable because someone I love has done something really ugly. So normally what I would want to do is just head straight up to intellectual rationalization, like, warning, warning, my guts hurt from cringing, get out, evacuate to the brain, evacuate. But we are talking about bodies today, and it does us no good if when reading our sacred text, we ignore our own responses. When Jesus calls this woman a dog, my tummy hurts, and my head, and my heart. Maybe someone has used a slur when talking to you, and you know that gut-wrenching feeling it brings up. Maybe you've used a slur when talking to someone else, and Reading this brings up the shame and regret of that moment. Maybe sitting with this moment brings up uncomfortable questions about our Redeemer, Jesus. And like all kinds of cultural bias, you don't know what you don't know. No one is immune from their own culture. It's like that old joke about two fish in a, you know, in a bowl, where one fish says, ooh, the water's kind of warm today, and the other fish says, what's water? That's what culture is. It seems like Jesus doesn't yet know, doesn't yet see that this woman is also part, is very much part of what he has been sent to do. They both know that Israelites and Canaanites are mortal enemies. So you have to wonder, what is she really expecting from this moment? And honestly, what are any of us expecting, though, when we are begging to be seen, crying out, for healing in our bodies and our minds. Please look past my shape. Look past my color, past my gender. Whatever culture you're swimming in, see me. See me. I love this woman, honestly, I do. I love what she says here. In a better translation than our own NRSV provides from the Greek, she responds, Yes, Lord, but even the puppies eat crumbs from the master's table. I mean, come on, is there anything more lovable than a puppy? Maybe an actual human baby, possibly kittens. It's been going on for a while, so we don't really have time to debate that right now. But the point is this. She fully acknowledges the historic enmity of the two cultures and finds a way to convey her own worth and the worth of her daughter to the one who can bring healing, asserting her worth. Body and soul is a profound act. 
Jesus uses another word of that kind of profound self-love, self-worth. He calls it faith. I also love that because of her faith, Jesus' own understanding, his work expands. That he recognizes that there's so many more bodies that matter. Saving love has been cracked open. You have to wonder if Paul would have understood his dual citizen self, Jewish and Roman, as well as the Gentile world as part of Christ's salvific love without the bravery of one Canaanite mama who would not take no for an answer. It is her faith and ours, that radical self-love that's a necessary component of our shared salvation. That same self-love would translate to seeing other bodies of any shape or size or color or gender or ability as being made in the same image and likeness of God, the imago dei. Holy things for holy people. Oh, friends, it is not what we put into our mouths that pollutes our bodies. Foods don't come in good or bad versions. It's just a blessing. It's just a blessing. Bodies don't come in, quote, good or, quote, bad versions. Because we're all holy. They just come in that one size, and that's holy. All things are made in the image and likeness of God, who, as near as I can tell, transcends any of our cultural default categories. There's no wrong member, no unworthy member of the body of Christ. And Christ's body, this body, is never, ever an apology. In the name of God, amen.